You're listening to the Women's Health Cast, a podcast from the University of Wisconsin Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I'm Jackie Askins. With this podcast, I'm exploring issues and innovations around women's health with a little help from experts in the UW Department of OBGYN and beyond. Our genes decide a lot about us, from our height to our eye color to whether or not we like cilantro. Personally, I'm on team cilantro tastes like soap. But some genes affect more serious things like our cancer risk. In the world of women's health, we often think of mutations on the BRCA or BRCA gene, which can increase the likelihood of developing breast or ovarian cancer. On this episode of the Women's Health Cast, I talked to Dr. Lisa Barillette. Dr. Barillette is a gynecologic oncologist and ovarian cancer expert in the UW-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and we discussed how BRCA mutations work, the risks and benefits of genetic testing, and what a positive BRCA test means for cancer treatment and prevention. Before we get into talking about BRCA, which is why I wanted to talk to you a little bit, um, why did you want to become a physician? You know, I think like a lot of physicians, I studied science in high school and college. I really enjoyed trying to figure out why things happen to the human body. Biology and chemistry in particular uh, were areas that I enjoyed. My father was a physicist, so I heard a lot about science growing up and experiments and trying to understand pathways and to figure out the why behind a result. I was a chemistry major, and I very strongly considered getting my PhD, but my advisor, who was a PhD in chemistry, said, you know what, I think you might not be happy only being in a laboratory, and you might really miss out if you're not interacting with people every day. You should go shadow a physician and see what you think. Of course, I loved it. He was right. Um, And I did take some time off between college and medical school to make sure I really wanted to be in medicine. And I worked actually at a psychiatric hospital for a couple of years. Um, I loved it. So you can imagine that. I figured if I could do that work, which was really difficult, that medicine might, in fact, be what I should do. What brought you to gynecologic oncology? Another winding road. I think as a medical student, I had really excellent mentorship in women's health and public health. And there are so many issues that we're receiving a great deal of attention during that time. I was a medical student in Minneapolis where there's a huge Somali refugee population and issues surrounded um, female circumcision and genitalia altering surgeries were receiving a lot of attention. So patient advocacy and education surrounding that was just as interesting to me as actually physically helping care for those patients. Do you have a specialty or a particular area of expertise in um, gynecologic oncology? Yeah, I love taking care of patients who are at risk for developing cancers. So I have a lot of young patients, um, and spoiler alert, we're going to talk about BRCA today for those listening. So I have a lot of BRCA patients in my practice, um, and something I spend a lot of time thinking about is how to prevent those patients from getting cancer and how we could better screen for cancer in that population. So that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about today. Um, I feel like BRCA has gotten a lot of attention. It's been very um, at the forefront in the last few years. What are people talking about when they say BRCA? So uh, I think that you're right that BRCA has become kind of a common phrase. And BRCA is exactly, uh, it's a a simply a shortening of the word breast cancer. Um, So BR, breast, CA, cancer. And it's a gene. 
Uh, we have thousands and thousands of genes in our body that map to chromosomes. It's part of how our DNA is made and how that is passed on for generation to generation. And this gene was identified because it was found. There's actually two of them, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Uh, there are two of them that were linked to families where there was a lot of breast cancer. Now, as we've learned more, it's not just breast cancer, or I wouldn't be sitting here. You'd talk, be talking to someone else. Ovarian cancers are very common in these families too, as well as some other cancers that have nothing to do um, with female anatomy. Um, so once we learned more about these genes and learned more about the risks that people who carried abnormalities in these genes had, we actually came upon a population of people we could really help and help before they develop cancer. So you said there's BRCA1 and BRCA2. Mm -hmm. um, how are they different? So they actually live on completely different chromosomes. Um, BRCA1 is on chromosome 17. BRCA2 is on chromosome 13. It doesn't really matter very much um, unless you're interested in uh, human pedigrees um, and mapping chromosomes. What's more interesting is that they are both abnormalities and what we call tumor suppressor genes. So our bodies are actually really smart and they want to do the right thing. They want to prevent cancer from forming. So we have so many, many genes in our body where one of their key roles is making sure that cells that are dividing abnormally or too rapidly are put into check. When tumor suppressor genes like BRCA don't fun function correctly, that's when cancer can start. Okay, so I was wondering how that mutation affected your cancer risk. So it sounds like they're preventing a gene from doing a job that it's meant to do. Yeah, so you can look at it most simply as an abnormality in how DNA is repaired. DNA replicates many, many, many times over a human lifespan. That's how all of our cells regenerate. And every time that replication happens, there's an opportunity for an error to occur. We have lots of checks and balances in the human body to make sure that if an error is found, that that um, repl replication stops at that point. Um, but if it doesn't, that's when cancer can start. So when BRCA isn't functioning correctly, your cells are more at risk for dividing abnormally. Okay. How, how common are BRCA mutations in sort of the general population? So uh, the not very common, fortunately. Um, less than 1% of the population carries a BRCA mutation. Uh, in certain populations, it's more common. And here in Wisconsin, we actually have a lot of Scandinavian heritage, and Norwegians are actually a group where we see slightly higher rates. Um, also, people from Iceland, um, Dutch populations, Ashkenazi, Jewish populations are at higher risk. But when we start to look at what we call an enhanced population, so when you start to look at women who actually have a breast or ovarian cancer diagnosis, those rates, not surprisingly, start to go up. So in ovarian cancer patients, about 15% of patients who have an ovarian cancer diagnosis will ultimately be found to have an abnormality in BRCA1 or BRCA2. How common is ovarian cancer in the general female population, I guess? Pretty rare also, about okay. 1%. So it's different in parts of the, different parts of the world, but that's a pretty good average. Besides a certain um, like ethnic background that might make you think, oh, mm -hmm. we should look for this risk. Are there other um, parts of a patient's health or family history that you would see and think, yes, we should definitely yeah. screen this patient for BRCA? So there are very specific guidelines, and a simple internet search would lead you to a long list of bullet points. But the highlights are really uh, breast and ovarian cancers that are present in multiple generations. So I think it's really important to understand that these genes, even though we're talking about female cancers, 
DNA comes from both your mother and your father. So looking at the father's family history is just as important as looking at the mother's family history. Obviously, it's going to be primarily female relatives affected, but it can be on either side of the family. These are what we call autosomal dominant genes. So if you carry one abnormal um, copy, you're going to see that get passed down from generation to generation. So it should be multiple generations affected. You'll also see earlier cancer diagnoses. So one of the things we look for is breast cancer diagnoses that happen before menopause. So women in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, males can get breast cancer. And if that happens, there is a very high chance that there is a BRCA mutation in that family. Um, ovarian cancer, as we talked about, is less common. So when we see more than one ovarian cancer in a small family group, that would be cause um, to consider genetic counseling or testing, and then a person who has a personal history of both breast and ovarian cancer. There's many other criteria, but that gives you an overview. How do the genetic tests work? What's the process like? So it's actually very easy to have genetic testing done in 2018. So the best way to go about genetic testing is start with someone with a cancer diagnosis. So even if you have a relative with cancer, that doesn't answer the question completely. You want to start with an affected individual. Usually genetic testing uh, occurs under the direction of a genetic counselor. There's exceptions to that, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But in general, that's a really smart way to go about obtaining genetic testing because it means you've met with an expert who's really reviewed your family's history and your specific risks. You might imagine that it's not just BRCA we're talking about. There's, of course, other genes that can be associated with cancer risk. And we want to make sure we're testing for all of those, not just a small panel, so that your tests are the results are the most meaningful they can be. So counselors undergo a two-year training program. They're specially trained to, under, to perform this type of counseling, really go through a family history carefully, and then order testing if indicated. So the testing itself is pretty anticlimactic. It can be done using a salivary swab or a simple tube of blood. Um, many times they're sent to different laboratories um, all across the country. There's many labs that do genetic testing. Um, and our, at our cancer center, we don't have a specific relationship with any one laboratory. So it might be what a patient's insurance covers, or it might be um, if they had a family member that was already tested. We would utilize the same laboratory so they can actually do what we call single site testing, which means just looking for the very specific mutation already known to be abnormal in that family. So if they're doing single site testing and they already know what abnormality they're likely to find, they really will just sequence that particular part of that particular gene. So it's a very specific short test. If they're testing more broadly, what we call panel testing, so looking for not just BRCA, but some of the other genes that can be abnormal in cancer patients, um, they'll do what we call next generation or exome sequencing, so actually sequencing a larger swath of a patient's DNA. So it'll capture more than just BRCA. It feels like direct-to-consumer genetic testing is becoming super, super popular. You can test yourself, you can test your dog. Yeah. There's a, um, it's really common now. And I've, I've read that some of the sort of direct-to-consumer companies are offering a, a BRCA screening. Um, how does that work in, can it take the place of um, genetic testing through a genetic counselor in a clinical setting, or how does it interact with a genetic test in clinical setting? Yeah, so uh, right now the direct-to-consumer tests, meaning you can order a test yourself without the involvement of any healthcare provider, is 
very limited. So it would test for one specific alteration in the BRCA1 gene and one specific alteration in the BRCA2 gene. So it's a very, very limited panel of tests. I wouldn't even call it a panel. It's really two tests. And while certainly it's fantastic to take those that test and get a negative result, you can imagine all the other things that are out there that were not tested. So my concern is that it could give a patient a false sense of security that they had, quote, bracket testing and it was negative, whereas what they really had was two specific alterations and two genes tested that was not at all inclusive of the many, many other abnormalities that could exist. So in my opinion, where we are right now is that genetic counselors still play, play a tremendous role in making sure that patients are having access to the best and most inclusive testing available. And the good news is most insurance companies will pay for genetic testing. So while you might imagine that the attractive prices that you can see offered with direct-to-consumer testing would be the cheapest thing. It's actually not. Insurance companies, if you have a family history, will often pay for testing completely. So you're not saving money by trying to avoid a visit to the counselor necessarily. So let's say um, I, I worked with you. We decided genetic counseling was the way to go. I get my test back and I'm positive for a BRCA mutation. That it sounds very, that sounds like a lot. Um, what happens next? So we offer here at the Carbone Cancer Center an opportunity to be seen in our PATHS clinic. PATH stands for Prevention Assessment and Tailored Health Screening, and it's a clinic that's been around for more than 10 years, and it's designed for patients at high risk for developing cancer, particularly female cancer. So its home is in our breast center. So as you can imagine, many of the patients who initially were seen in this clinic had abnormal BRCA results. Now we have so many other genes that are being tested for that it's a much larger clinic that um, really sees anyone with any type of increased risk in any female cancer. So that's a really great place to start as a patient because as you alluded to, this is a very overwhelming diagnosis. And especially if you're the first one in your family who's been tested, you don't have a sister or a mother or someone else to talk to about the process. Um, and people are getting tested younger and younger. While that's fantastic, it can also mean that a pretty significant weight is being placed on patients' shoulders when they are decade a decade away from thinking about a family, when they are concentrating on balancing their checkbooks. No one really does that anymore, but you know what I mean, just figuring out life. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, yeah. they learn they have an 80% chance of developing breast cancer and a 40% chance of developing ovarian cancer. That's a huge burden to carry. The PATH clinic is meant to help those patients see a variety of providers across disciplines in order to figure out what, if any, risk reduction strategies or enhanced screening they may want to participate in. What do you mean by risk reduction strategies? So there's a lot of different things we can do to reduce cancer risk. Um, surgery is probably what people think of the most. Angelina Jolie gave a lot of attention to this, um, brought a lot of attention to this when she decided to have her breast remove, um, a prophylactic mastectomy, and she also chose to have her ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. And those um, were done without a cancer diagnosis. So not surprisingly, a very effective way of reducing cancer risk is to remove the organs at risk for cancer. And because breasts and ovaries are not vital to human life, that is not an unreasonable course of action. 
Now, obviously, that has tremendous reproduction, <laughs> repercussions for patients, particularly young patients who may not have had children yet, who are very far from the age of natural menopause, who may want to retain their breast tissue for breastfeeding or just for their own self-identity as a female. So um, while I do think it's an important conversation to have, and depending on someone's family history and risk and preference, maybe something that many patients choose, there are lots of other other things that can be done to reduce cancer risk. So um, we think about what we call chemo prevention or medications that can decrease cancer risk. I can get into specifics of that, um, but there are pretty effective ways of actually lowering breast cancer risk by using medications like tamoxifen. Birth control pills can lower the risk of ovarian cancer. So I know that some breast cancers, though, are like estrogen responsive and if you're taking a birth control that would prevent ovulation, right? So that's the kind of birth control you'd want to use to reduce your risk of ovarian cancer. Um, but those are going to have estrogen in them, correct? Sure. So how does that work together? Yeah, so I think you're touching upon one of the strengths of this clinic and, in fact, of working with any knowledgeable healthcare provider is you have to work with every individual patient to come up with their risk adjust adjustment model for themselves. So uh, for me, with many of my patients that I work with from a young age, so our patients who are diagnosed in their 20s, we talk about using birth control pills for ovarian cancer prevention as, as early in their reproductive lifespan as we can. So in their teens, in their 20s, into their early 30s. We do not believe that birth control pills increase breast cancer risk when they're taken in, during younger years. This is all new evolving data. So you could certainly ask 10 physicians this question and get slightly different answers. And of course, my bias as a GYN oncologist is going to be towards ovarian cancer prevention. But in general, myself and our breast medical oncologists have made, made peace with the idea of trying to use birth control pills when patients are younger seeing that when we've, we've found these small but real increases in links between birth control pills and breast cancer, it seems to be patients in their 30s or later. So we want to maximize their benefit, minimize their risk, and it seems that using them earlier is probably the safest way to do that. So we talked about surgery and we talked about medication. Are there other um, risk avoidance strategies that you sure. can pursue? So. For breast cancer, we've been really lucky that there's been tremendous advan advances in imaging. So it's not risk reduction as much as enhanced screening. So women with BRCA mutations are going to be offered a chance to not just get mammograms, but also MRIs. And depending on their patient's age, there may be uh, the way MRIs are used may be more frequent. So that can be tremendously helpful in detecting breast cancer early. We haven't yet hit that same level of accuracy with ovarian cancer screening. So that's actually when I meet with young patients with BRCA mutations, that's where we spend a lot of time, especially in patients who aren't ready, who are young and aren't ready to think about removing ovaries or fallopian tubes. We spend a lot of time talking about the benefits and risks of screening for ovarian cancer. Right now, what screening looks like for high-risk women is a combination of an ultrasound and a blood test called CA-125. And this has been studied um, over thousands of women who are at high risk for developing cancer. And although we've made some progress in s detecting cancer slightly earlier, we have never um, successfully decreased mortality from ovarian cancer. It's just really hard to detect before it's spread. 
So I don't yet have a screening test to offer women that I can tell them will change their outcome and make it less likely that they will die of this disease. Do we know why it's so hard to detect? It's a very smart cancer. Um, It starts with really subtle changes in the fallopian tube. And the fallopian tube is not a particularly easy area to image. Um, And then it spreads rapidly. So that's probably the biggest difference between breast cancer and ovarian cancer. Obviously, there's exceptions to this. But in general, breast cancer is pretty localized initially and will spread what we call locally. So if it's going to spread, it'll spread to the immediately the immediate surrounding tissue first. Ovarian cancer does not care. It will go anywhere in the abdominal cavity. It will do so very early. So we're not sure why Um, it's so fond of what we call peritoneal surfaces, but basically any surface in the abdomen is fair game. So we'll see patients who had normal imaging studies very recently present with disease that's dispersed throughout the abdominal cavity. So you've said it's really hard to, to catch it early. It's really hard to to image to get a good view of it. Um, but I do know you're working on uh, kind of an interesting uh, project, a research project, to, to try and figure out a new way. How is that going? So it's going okay. Like all research, it's moving slowly. But I am very lucky to have a fantastic radiologist with whom I've partnered on a number of projects. Her, her name is Elizabeth Sadowski, and she's here at the University of Wisconsin. We also have a, a second-year GYN oncology fellow, Brittany Lees, who's been instrumental in helping move this work forward. So the three of us are looking at a novel tracer that can be used in PET imaging. And it's been studied mostly in men. It's called prostate-specific membrane antigen. So obviously was developed um, to look at prostate cancers. Uh, But we found that it's actually expressed in new blood vessels. Um, And that's a big deal when cancer is forming. One of the first things that cancer does when it's getting comfortable is increase its own blood supply. So we know that neovascular changes could be a really powerful thing to detect early. And we think that PSMA, which is uh, simply a tracer that's injected, much as FDG, which is another tracer used for PET scans, is injected into the vein, um, might might help detect these subtle changes earlier. And we're using that in combination with MRI. MRI is a little bit underutilized right now in um, pelvic anatomy. We use it a lot for breast, um, but it is a really wonderful way of looking at the ovaries and tubes in three dimensions. And it's just been understudied from a screening perspective. So we're trying to use these two things together to see if we can understand right now a little bit more about how they behave in healthy women. So that's the first part of this this project is, hey, um, is this PSMA? What does it look like in healthy ovaries and fallopian tubes? And so we started this pilot project in women who have planned surgery for non-cancer reasons. So women who we are actually going to planning to take out their ovaries and fallopian tubes, we can actually look at them under the microscope and see if the PSMA is expressed in the tissue the way we think it should be based on how it showed up on PET scan. So that study is accruing now, and we've um, been very fortunate to accrue about 10 of the 40 patients planned. We've also expanded our eligibility to include cancer patients too, so we can learn a little bit more about PSMA distribution in the gynecologic organs if there's cancer in them. So you can tell this is really preliminary work. I'm certainly not saying we're one step away from detecting ovarian cancer earlier, but I think that this is an area that has been understudied and underfunded, and I'm very committed to making sure we're leaving no stone unturned in terms of safe and novel ways to image pelvic anatomy.
So uh, back a little bit to um, BRCA. Are those mutations the only mutations that can change or affect your breast and ovarian cancer risk? Not at all. So it seems that the more people who undergo genetic testing, the more genes we're finding that can be abnormal in patients with hereditary cancer syndromes. I'll name a few. It's by no means an exhaustive list, but patients with RAD5-1 mutations have higher ovarian cancer and breast cancer risk. PELB-B2 can be associated with breast cancer. Lynch syndrome, which is also called hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer syndrome, can affect um, the colon, not surprisingly, but also the uterus and the ovary. So that's another one that we talk to patients about frequently. Uh, certainly, even in the last five years, a number of new genes have been detected. I expect five years from now, if we're sitting here, I'll have a list of 10 more genes to tell you about. Can BRCA mutations uh, increase your risk of any other type of cancer? Yes. So BRCA2 in particular has other cancer risk associated with it. Um, gastric cancers, hepatobiliary, pancreatic, um, melanomas even. So we do have patients. That's another reason I think that being in a multidisciplinary clinic can be so helpful is we can actually try and manage some of those other screening protocols under one umbrella. So you have your providers working together to help make sure you're keeping up with all of your cancer screening and try and keep those results and Coalated in a somewhat manageable fashion it can be very overwhelming. What do you wish patients knew more about before they came to see you about their cancer risk and how to approach the whole process? It's hard not to be overwhelmed by a diagnosis where you know that your chance of developing cancer over your lifetime is so high. I wish I could help my patients even before they met me, feel empowered by this knowledge because it is, it can feel like a curse, but it's also a gift. And we do know a lot about how to keep patients safe. So while these genes can feel like they've completely changed the course of someone's life, it actually can give our patients an opportunity to live the lives they wanted and have kids if they want to have kids and breastfeed if they want to breastfeed and get married or not get married, do whatever their life plan was going to be. I don't think this needs to alter it, but it is an opportunity to check in at different points along the way and make sure that we're maximizing our risk reduction strategies in a way that doesn't detour from their life goals and plans. Dr. Barlett, thank you so much for talking with us about this very important topic. Anytime. Thank you. If you're in the Madison area and would like to support gynecologic cancer research happening at the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center, please join us on September 29th for our annual Sparkle of Hope Gala. Meet the researchers and providers working to improve gynecologic cancer care and celebrate with survivors and families. More information and tickets are available at sparkleofhopemadison.org. Because September is Gynecologic Cancer Awareness Month, next week we will also share a bonus interview about the surprising origins of ovarian cancer. Dr. Diane Yamada is the Chief of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Chicago. We discussed her research that suggests ovarian cancer actually starts in the fallopian tubes and what that means for detection, treatment, and prevention. 
Women's HealthCast is a production of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. This episode was produced and engineered by Rob Garza. You can subscribe to Women's HealthCast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WISCOBGYN. Please let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and let us know what women's health issues you would like to learn more about. Thanks for listening.